Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. We began this course around the 14th and 15th centuries. For hundreds of years before that point, China, India, and the wider Indian Ocean region had been at the center of the world in terms of wealth, innovation, and power. As you now know, in the 18th century, the center of global power then shifted decisively to the West, where it remained for around 250 years. And now the center of world power is shifting back to Asia. How did this happen? The roots of the transformation go back to the end of World War II. For over 50 years after 1945, the United States played a preponderant role, both as a singularly powerful nation-state and as the leader of an international order that rejected traditional forms of imperialism and advocated liberal democratic political systems, free markets, and open international trade. There was, of course, an alternative to this model represented by the Soviet Union and China. That model was communism, which in practice meant state control of all major economic sectors, political rule by single parties, and the rejection of integration into the global economy. The competition between these two models was known as the Cold War. As for the new nation-states of what was once known as the Third World, they were caught somewhere in the middle. Some tried to remain unaligned, that is, not allied to either the Soviet Union or to communist China or to the United States. But most could not avoid being entangled in the global Cold War. Historians have been debating why and how the Cold War ended the way it did. That is, unexpectedly and mostly peacefully in the late 1980s and early 1990s. In the Western industrialized world, several decades of post-war economic growth came to an end in the 1970s but a turn to what became known as neoliberal economics, that is, an emphasis on free markets, deregulation, and free trade, along with a revolution in computer and communications technologies led to a period of renewed growth, though at the cost of accelerating economic inequality. This renewed economic dynamism was not limited to the West. Indeed, Japan became a global economic powerhouse between the mid-1960s and 1990. And at the same time, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, and Hong Kong, or what some observers at the time called the Four Asian Tigers, became what you might call mini-powerhouses of industrialization and sustained economic growth. A parallel development was a wave of democratization that began in Europe in the 1970s and then spread to much of the rest of the world in the late 1980s and in the 1990s. And much of this transformation took place without war. Meanwhile, the communist world took one of two very different paths, collapse or transformation. 
The path of collapse was taken by the Soviet Union and its allied communist regimes in Eastern Europe. The path of transformation was taken by China. I'll start with the Soviet Union. By the 1980s, communist regimes in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe were in deep trouble. For one thing, it was increasingly evident that the economies of these states were decaying. And state control economies simply could not keep up with the technological revolution taking place in the West. Second, while people had jobs, housing, medical care, and relatively good educations, the quality of daily life for most people had become pretty poor. By the 1980s, decent quality consumer goods were relatively scarce, and environmental conditions in many places were particularly bad. A third problem was that political leaders could not be held accountable for this situation. There was no legal opposition, and extensive secret police networks monitored the population and cracked down on individual and collective dissent. Fourth, making matters worse was the fact that everyone knew two things. One, everyone knew that high-ranking members of the party enjoyed privileges that the vast majority of ordinary people did not, like access to Western goods, better educational opportunities for their children, better medical care, and sometimes even the freedom to travel to non-communist countries. Second, while communist regimes constantly told their citizens that the capitalist West was racked with unemployment, crime, and drug addiction, everyone in communist societies knew that life was in fact better in the West, freer and more prosperous. Finally, a big problem had to do with the fact that the Soviet Union was a vast, multi-ethnic empire, and nationalism and separatism were growing in its peripheries. Then in the mid-1980s, a relatively young leader took charge in the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev understood how bad things had gotten, but he believed that communism could be reformed if two things happened. One, a greater willingness to be more open about society's problems and also about the past. And two, a restructuring of the economy, meaning a loosening of state control of some sectors. The hope was that this would make the economy more nimble, more adaptable to change. Gorbachev also believed that the communist dictatorships of Eastern Europe must reform. And here he made a fundamentally important decision. Over the course of the Cold War, the Soviet Union had repeatedly intervened in Eastern Europe when communist regimes were faced with popular revolts. This happened in East Germany in 1953, in Hungary in 1956, and in Czechoslovakia in 1968. By the late 1980s, however, Gorbachev warned his comrades in Eastern Europe that if they did not reform, and if they then got into trouble with their populations, 
This time, the Soviet Union would not use force to help them. And when popular revolts did break out in Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and other communist states, Gorbachev stood by and let them collapse one after the other. Now, little did he know that the Soviet Union itself was next. In 1990 and 1991, the USSR broke apart. And like Eastern Europe, this revolution took place mostly without armed conflict. In the years after, democracy succeeded in some former Soviet republics, but it failed to take hold or last in others, notably in Russia. Post-Soviet economies were subjected to what became known as economic shock therapy, meaning the sudden privatization of the economy, the liberalization of trade, the sudden end of state subsidies, and the end of state controls on prices and the currency. This model had been applied with some success in the 1970s and 1980s in a couple of South American states and in New Zealand. A version of it was also applied in post-communist Eastern Europe, with mixed success. But the results in Russia were particularly disastrous for most ordinary Russians. Making matters worse was something less tangible, but without question, incredibly important. Many Russians felt humiliated by the West. They continued to believe that Russia should still be considered a great world power, given its history and the fact that it is rich in human and natural resources. But many believed men like Gorbachev and his successor as the leader of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, had, in effect, sold the country to the West. Particularly troubling to Russian nationalists, such as Russia, Russia's current nationalist leader, Vladimir Putin, was the extension eastward of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, into Eastern Europe, that is, right up to the borders of the former Soviet Union. So, not that surprisingly, a powerful nationalist backlash ensued, mainly against liberal democracy of the Western variety. One form this nationalist backlash has taken is repeated Russian military actions, invasions and interventions in neighboring Georgia, in Ukraine, and in the Syrian civil war, along with the use of disinformation campaigns to influence the politics of other nations, most notably in the attempt by the Russian government to influence the 2016 presidential election in the United States. So in the end, the larger point is that Mikhail Gorbachev attempted to combine limited political and economic liberalization, believing both would reform communism, not destroy it, but the system could not be reformed in the way that Gorbachev imagined, and it collapsed. Well, what happened in China? In 1976, China's leader Mao Zedong died. A towering figure in the history of global communism, Mao had led China since 1949. He was succeeded by Deng Xiaoping, 
Deng and his successors took China on a very different path. In contrast to the Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, undertook a more aggressive program of economic liberalization. Specifically, they opened China's economy to market forces. The results were dramatic. By the end of the 1980s, there had been enormous increases in production and millions of Chinese people were being pulled out of poverty. In 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization, an event that signaled its complete integration into the world economy. For 30 years before 2015, average annual economic growth may have been as high as 9%, though slowing to 7% in 2015. By the end of 2010, China had the world's second largest economy after the, after the United States. At the same time, the CCP rejected political liberalization. That is, the CCP would not share power. China would remain a one-party state. All of this came at a cost, of course. Economic inequality increased dramatically, as did environmental degradation. Corruption also remains an enormous problem. The Chinese government's suppression of Tibetan nationalism has long drawn negative international attention. And in recent years, the CCP has become much more oppressive in Xinjiang, the home of a substantial Turkic-language-speaking Muslim minority group, the Uyghurs. The CCP has also used China's wealth and greater confidence to project power and influence around the world, in part through its Belt and Road Initiative, which I talked about earlier in the course, and in part through an assertion of economic and military power into the wider Pacific Ocean region. Relations with the United States have worsened in the last four years, and the regime has had to contend with a sophisticated pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, the semi-independence of which China had promised to respect after Great Britain handed control of the territory back to China in 1997. And then came the pandemic, which originated in China. As Kishore Mabubani points out, none of these things seem likely to stop the larger scale historic transformation taking place. That is, the return of China to the center of the world. Now, China is not the only rising economic power in Asia. The other, of course, is India. Economic reforms there began later than they did in China, in 1991, when India began opening up to the global economy. Between 2004 and 2009, the economy grew about 9% annually before slipping to 7% from 2010 to 2015. As in China, the state relaxed its control over the economy and billions of dollars in foreign investment flowed into the country every year, with the information technology sector becoming particularly strong. As also in China, incomes rose and millions moved out of poverty. And along with this came rising inequality, persistent corruption, and highly polluted cities.
In 2014, the BJP political party, led by Narendra Modi, came to power, displacing the Congress party. The BJP is pro-business and intensely Hindu nationalist and anti-Muslim. A longer-standing problem has been tensions with neighboring Pakistan, a particularly dangerous matter as the two states have fought multiple wars and both possess nuclear arsenals. The region of Kashmir, which is Muslim-majority, controlled by India and claimed by Pakistan, is one of the world's most unstable and dangerous hotspots. Now, all of this may not be enough to prevent the return of India, along with China, to the center of the world. But like other major powers, both face daunting internal divisions and powerful external rivals. And there's something else. The return of China and India to the center of the world may face its greatest challenge in the wake of the pandemic, even if their governments manage to contain the spread of the virus within their respective countries. But doing that is only part of the challenge. The rise of India and China has been dependent on globalization unbound. But the pandemic may have finally presented the seemingly unstoppable force of contemporary globalization with an adversary that will change it fundamentally. The fate of globalization in the dawning era of the pandemic through which we are now living will be the subject of the final episode. Thanks for listening, and be well.